Thank you. It is so good to be with you, and I'm so glad you're still letting old people preach every once in a while. Uh, It's been a joy these past months to be able to worship here on consecutive Sundays because for the past six years, as you know, you kind of sent me out to be an interim pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and then uh, in Peoria, Illinois. And now I'm working uh, from my home, traveling out of Memphis, but I'm here to uh, be able to be here most Sundays. So I've really been enjoying worshiping with you and and, uh, catching up with you. I have a long way to go to get caught up including those of you who are new over the past six and a half years. I know you don't consider yourself new, but if you came within the six and a half years, you're new to me. And I look forward to getting to know you better as well. I'm so glad that George is taking the Sunday off, not because I get to preach, but because I remember when my own dad died and I preached here the next Sunday, like George did last Sunday. And I remember after the early service, Larry Jensen, who had lost his father uh, as a young man, came up to me and said, how you doing? That was the end of it. I think I cried for the next hour. And so I'm glad that um, George is doing it the right way and getting a way to process these things and look to the Lord in, in quietude. And he'll be back ready to preach next Sunday. For those of you who came from miles and miles away to hear Dr. George Robertson, I'm really sorry you're stuck with me. George asked me to tell you what I'm doing now, which is I'm an interim president for the Gospel Coalition. You know Dr. Julius Kim, our prior president. He was here preaching and ministering among you. When he resigned, I was asked to take the interim position. Even knowing I'm not qualified to do such, I'm willing to kind of hold the fort until we get our next permanent president. The Gospel Coalition was formed 18 years ago because of the needs in our society to define the gospel carefully, to declare it loudly, to defend it intelligently, and then to apply it to every area of church life and every every area of cultural life as well. Since those days, the need for our organization has only grown. These past 25 years have seen the largest unchurching movement in the history of our country. We have lost 40 million people out of church over the past 25 years. So the need to get the gospel out, to explain it carefully, to build up church leaders is still heavily weighing upon us, and we're delighted to be engaged in that ministry. We had about 40 million hits on our website last year, so obviously our resources are encouraging a lot of people, not only in this country, but around the world. We have 18 international TGCs, Gospel Coalitions, and 24 regional, domestic regional Gospel Coalitions. As you know, uh, George uh, serves on the council of the coalition, which he has done for years, as do I. So we both commend that organization to you and thank you for your prayers and your engagement in the gospel. Which brings us to today's text. If you were to pick a text which explains sort of the heart of the gospel Uh, in a more beautiful way, you'd have a hard time looking elsewhere than Romans chapter 3. Would you please turn there with me? And while you're turning, let me just remind you, Paul had by this time never been to Rome, we think. But when you turn to Romans 16, you see he has a lot of friends. And there were reasons for that. Wealthy Roman citizens tended to travel and they would run into each other. And Paul would know them from all over the world, just like he did uh, Priscilla and Aquila 
who came from Rome to Corinth where Paul met them in business. Paul was a tent maker and so were they. He led them to Christ and then became partners in the gospel. So Paul knows a lot of people in the Roman church. He's just not been there, but he's promising to come. And when he comes, he wants their support for him to take the gospel to Spain and other regions. He also is quite aware this church is made up of two major ethnic groups, the Gentiles and the Jews. And he wants to show them the gospel so they know exactly what he's preaching and what he'll be preaching in Spain, as well as what he's going to preach to them when he comes. And he also gives them this gospel as the only real solution to cut through the barriers of race and other human institutions. So the letter is one of the most beautiful you'll ever read. As a matter of fact, Paul, having written 13 letters, if this had been the only one he wrote, he has to be known as the greatest theologian ever in the history of the world, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is a tremendous gift to us and brings us the joy of our salvation. Would you please stand with me? We'll pray, and then I'd like for us to read uh, Romans three nineteen through 31. Please stand with me. Heal us, Emmanuel. Here we are. We long to feel thy touch. Deep wounded souls, to you we fly. O Savior, hear our cry. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Romans 3, verse 19, hear the word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, 
we uphold the law. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. Thirteen years ago, you sent me to Lausanne 3. That was the third conference of the Lausanne movement, which was begun by Dr. John R. W. Stott in England and Dr. Billy Graham in the States to define the gospel, to defend it, to proclaim it around the world and to build up his church. And the conferences were meant to be a gathering of evangelists and church leaders and preachers who together would strategize about the next phase of the evangelical church seeking to reach the world for Jesus Christ. So you can imagine it was quite an event with 4,400 people there. David Bowen and I both were there for this event. And uh, we heard many, many testimonies of God's work around the world. We saw many interesting uh, costumes and we heard many profound sermons all of which were recorded for posterity with the exception of one presentation. For security reasons, there was one presentation where all the videos were turned off, all the audio recording was turned off, and you can't get a copy of the speech. It was from a young woman, a teenager, 18 years of age. She had grown up in North Korea. When she was six years of age, her mother and daddy found a way to escape from North Korea into China, which became for them the land of freedom and opportunity, which teaches you something about the oppression of North Korea. While they were in China, they were taken in mercifully by a Christian pastor and his family into their home. While they were there, this girl's mother subsequently died. But because of the ministry of that pastor, her father had come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And eventually he said to her when she was only six years of age, honey, I've come to know Jesus Christ and my family and my villagers don't know him. I must go back. He left her with the pastor's family in China. And for four years, he went and was imprisoned in North Korea. She didn't know where he was. Until he returned, he found his way back across the border to China. She's now 10 years of age. And he told her that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go back and to give his life to share this gospel with others who hadn't heard. And that he was commending her to the care of extended family in South Korea, where of course it would be safe. She was taken to South Korea. He went to North Korea. She told us in her speech she's never heard from him again, and she's quite confident that he was executed for his witness. This was a beautiful North Korean woman, 18 years of age. She was a picture of modesty and self-control until she reached the end of her speech, her 15-minute talk, at which point she broke down and began to sob. And she said, I'm asking you to pray for me because I too must make my way back to North Korea so that the people of my childhood village and my extended family 
will hear this gospel and come to know the Lord. When you hear stories like that, you have to ask yourself, what compels a person to do this? You might even say more broadly, over the 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ, in which case we've had 75 million martyrs, Christian martyrs, what would compel them to give up their lives? Or you could even ask a, a more modest question. Why is it that those who believe in what we just read this morning uh, give twice as much for the sake of the poor in this country than those who don't believe this chapter? Or why is it that those who believe what we just read this morning volunteer at rates three times over those who don't believe this chapter? This chapter changes lives when it's properly understood. And it is incumbent upon us to take a hard look at it. Because if you're not a Christian this morning, it's very important that you listen carefully to understand what is so life-changing about this gospel. If you are a believer this morning, it's very important that you give yourself again to study this great chapter because it becomes the motive for everything in your life. And you are motivated daily by contemplation of these things. So if we look at these verses that we just read, you'll see three divisions. And they're really three paragraphs in your Bible. The first one is verses 19 through 20 that we read. In those verses, you basically have defined for us the problem that the gospel intends to solve. In the next paragraph, verses 21 through 26, and I'll give you the more detailed outline in just a moment, you have the solution to the human problem revealed in the gospel. That's verses 21 through 26. In verses 27 through 31, what you have before you, that, next, that last paragraph, you have the effect upon a human being who grasps what is being taught here and puts it into his or her life. So there would hardly be a more important text for us to examine this morning. Let's begin. We want to look first of all, it's Roman numeral one in your outline. And by the way, when Dee Walker saw this, she said, well, it's Sandy Wilson. What do you know? They look at that outline. Uh, if this helps you, fine. If it doesn't, and you're an auditory learner, just leave it aside. But for those of you who do like to take notes, notice here, no human beings on their own can possibly be justified before God. That's Paul's point. No human beings on their own can possibly be justified before God. Now, what does it mean to be justified before God? It means to be accepted by him, to be welcomed into his presence, to be considered okay to come into his throne room. That's what it means to be justified by God. And what Paul is teaching us here is that no human being could possibly be justified on their own effort. Now, you students of Romans know that these two verses are actually a summary of about two chapters worth of detailed teaching on this matter. And he has two or three audiences in mind. Number one, he's speaking to the pagan Gentile 
who has another religion, who have their own ethical standards, who don't even know about Jesus Christ. And he says to them, as you know, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness, human unrighteousness. And what can be known about God is clear to them in creation, he says. So you may say, well, how could you possibly blame them? Well, Paul says they have a conscience and they have creation around them, which displays for any open-minded person who's reasonable that this was put here by somebody else, by intentionality. There was a designer behind this creation. That's the reason our creation discussions are so important for the Christian mission, that it's through creation that we know there's an eternal God who has great power. And furthermore, he says, of the Gentile, even what they do know in their conscience about right and wrong, good and evil, they violated it all. So whether the law is the Ten Commandments in the case of the Jews, or the law is the conscience perceiving the handiwork of God in creation, they've all fallen short of their own standard. Therefore, they're what we call sinners. And sinners on their own cannot come into the presence of God. You say, why is that? I thought God was merciful. He is. But he's also holy. And you'll remember from Isaiah 6, what happens when Isaiah has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his holiness, high and lifted up. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. My eyes have seen the king. Sinful eyes are not supposed to be laid upon the king. Only righteous and holy eyes. And we're taught by the prophet Habakkuk that God is too holy to tolerate evil. And he he cannot tolerate wrong. He doesn't even look upon evil. It can't be in his presence. Whatever would come into his presence would be destroyed if it were sinful. Paul's making the argument, do you understand? If you know anything about the God who is, he is a holy God and on your own, you're not qualified to be in his presence. Paul even addresses the Jewish people who have their rich religious tradition, who've been studying the Torah, who've been practicing their sacraments. And he says, even you have broken the standards of your own religion. And you, you can't be justified just because you were circumcised or you're brought up by a Christian family or you, you've always gone to temple for all the festivals. Because your fundamental problem is your sin problem. Now, you'll notice in this paragraph, I've given you two points that I think Paul is making. Number one, A, there are no excuses. He makes that quite clear in uh, verses 19 uh, and 20. There are no excuses. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped. So just... Hold off on the excuses. You're you're talking to the king. He knows everything. Secondly, there is no escape. That's B on your outline. And you see that in the last part of verse 19. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if you're a Jewish person or if you're a Christian person and you know the law of God, well, guess what? It's that very law that enables you to know your sin, which enables us to say, on my own, I'm not qualified to be in his presence. Now, some may think they are. 
And what you must deal with is what the Bible says. The very word of God teaches us about our problem. And the Bible says you're not qualified. You are what Paul says elsewhere is an object of God's wrath. So his anger, we're told in Romans 1.18, is revealed against all of our unrighteousness. So by nature, as we're conceived and born and brought into this world, by nature we're under the displeasure, the wrath, the anger, the just anger of God. Sometimes people, even Christians, will say, I just don't know how God could send people to hell who've never heard the gospel. Has that crossed your mind? It crosses mine all the time. And it does give me a sense of wonder. I do ask the question. But these two verses answer it. Every human had their human chance in Adam and Eve. And we've all performed just like they did. We've not only were conceived in sin, but we've lived it out, every one of us. So from the biblical perspective, it's not so much a mystery that anyone's consigned to hell and God's eternal judgment. The mystery is what comes next. Why would God not send everybody to hell, which is what we deserve? This is the great mystery. This is the reason that we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. You won't find a hymn in your hymn book that says, amazing justice that condemns sinners. It's not amazing at all. It just makes perfect sense. What's amazing is the next paragraph. And that brings us to Roman numeral number two. And here's what we learn here. God has graciously provided a miraculous justification for sinners. He has provided a miraculous, gracious solution for our rejection by nature before God. Notice the first words, but now a righteousness. See, this is the point. It's righteousness. Who's righteous? Paul says earlier in chapter three, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. He's quoting the Psalms. Not one righteous person on the planet. But now, Paul says, here's the announcement. Here's the gospel. It's an announcement. But now, a righteousness has been revealed, has been manifested by God, and it's apart from human performance. It's apart from your law problem. It's a different kind of righteousness. Now, this is quite something. You who grew up at Second Presbyterian heard this from Sunday school, and it seems like the most natural thing in all the world. It's not natural at all. Martin Luther grew up in the medieval church uh, in which they were being taught that their righteousness that justified them was the righteousness that they worked out in their own lives. It's what we would call sanctification. And to this day, the Roman church teaching, those of you with Roman Catholic backgrounds know what I'm talking about. The Roman church teaching is that what justifies you is the level of practical righteousness you've accomplished in your life. Now, we Protestant evangelicals believe in practical righteousness. What we don't believe in is that it could ever justify anybody. When we are at our best, Isaiah said, it's like filthy rags. So it stinks before God. So even at our best, 
That doesn't mean we shouldn't be seeking righteousness practically in our lives. We should be honest. We should pay our bills. We should be kind to one another. And that's all for the glory of God, but it will not justify us. Luther was taught that it does. And it nearly drove him crazy. Literally, it nearly drove him crazy. Finally, his confessor, uh, Johann Stoppitz, said to him, Brother Luther, don't come back and confess anything until you've got something serious to confess. Luther was confessing every little thought, every little, in a neurotic attempt to justify himself. Luther later said in his life, if anybody could have earned salvation through their monkery, it was myself. He was a serious, serious monk, but he was also a Bible professor. And when he was doing his lectures on Romans, it dawned on him in the year 1518 or a little before. He was in the tower at the University of Wittenberg and he realized righteousness that's demanded of us is not the infused righteousness of sanctification. It's a righteousness that comes from heaven that's given to us in toto. It's a totally complete package of perfect righteousness. It's actually the life of Jesus Christ, the credit for his life imputed to us. When Luther discovered this, he preached on it later. It was a sermon called Two Kinds of Righteousness. But when this dawned on him, here's what he said about that moment. He said, it was as though I were born again. The portals of heaven and paradise opened for me and I walked through them. I think he was converted at that point because he understood this paragraph we're studying in Roman numeral number two. Uh, A very well-known New Testament scholar uh, once said of this paragraph, this possibly is the most important paragraph ever written. Verses 21 through 26. This is the righteousness that's revealed from God. Now notice several things about this righteousness that qualifies us, that justifies us. In fact, the word for justification and righteousness are the same in Greek. So it's a, it's a new justification. It's a gift. You notice the word gift in the text. It comes to us. How? How does it come to us? He says, through faith. And you'll find the word faith five times in this text. You think he's emphasizing something? It's apart from your performance. It's simply by trusting another. Well, Sarah said it a few moments ago to the kids. And weren't you listening in like you're always supposed to during children's sermons? You just cling to Jesus. You just trust him. You invest in him. You believe in him. You're trusting, you're, as the confession of faith says, receiving and resting upon him by faith. That's what faith does. It's a simple trust in Jesus. It's solely trusting in Jesus. And it's sincerely trusting in Jesus. That's real biblical faith through which your righteousness comes. Now notice something important. This faith, and this is A, on your outline under number two, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. This faith is not your righteousness. It's the means by which you receive your righteousness. So you are not credited as righteous, hey, because now I believe. No, your belief is imperfect. We sang it a moment ago. The man says to Jesus, yes, I believe, help my unbelief. And aren't you like that too? So your belief is imperfect. It couldn't possibly pass 
as your righteousness. So faith is not the ground of your righteousness. It's not the substance of it. It's the instrument by which you get righteousness. And it's so important, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I think 70%, psychologists say about 70% of our psychological problems in the church and outside the church would be solved if people would believe one thing, your sins are forgiven. Guilt is an amazing negative motivator. It's very destructive and it keeps you away from Jesus Christ. In fact, I remember this would be a long time ago, maybe 42, 43 years ago. My five-year-old at the time, my oldest son, Drew, five years old, he came to me and he said, Daddy, I can't be a Christian. I said, why is that, Drew? And he said, because every time I try to be a Christian, I just keep doing bad things. (laughs) Could this be an opportunity for the gospel? Obviously, I hadn't taught him very well until then, had I? But it gave us that opportunity to talk about this right here. The reason you and I are plagued with guilt, stay up at night and can't get over it, and our nerves are often shattered, is because we've forgotten something very important. Our righteousness comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, not in ourselves. But notice, secondly, this would be B on your outline. It's through propitiation by his blood, that fancy word in in verse 25, propitiation. What is that? Propitiate is the same as to placate or to satisfy or to make somebody happy. So who's being made happy in the gospel? You? No. Paul says, let me tell you, God put forth, he did it, he initiated it, he gave us a propitiation that placates God. Why does God need to be placated? I just assume he's happy all the time. Well, he is, except he's not very happy with you because you're unrighteous and you're presuming to come into his presence. How can we placate him? There's only one solution, ladies and gentlemen. You see, God, and I mean this reverently, God has a problem. He is holy and righteous and he cannot tolerate wrong, but he loves sinners. How do you solve that problem? If you love someone whom you're obligated by every moral standard to hate and to be angry with, how in the world can you love them? And by God's infinitely glorious and wise design, he gave us the only solution in the world. This is what's amazing, is that there's a solution to this problem at all. And then when you look and see what the only solution is, you're even more staggered in amazement at how much God loves sinners. He sent his own son to take on human flesh, to die in our place. So we not only have his righteousness from his perfect life given to us, but our sin is placed on him. That's the reason Paul mentions blood. There is no salvation apart from blood because blood is the life of the being and the life is surrendered through his poured out blood. It's his death whereby he paid the penalty that was due us through faith. So you see, faith is not the ground of your righteousness. The work of Christ is the ground and faith is what connects you to it. Now, for once again, those of you who may have a Roman Catholic background or who have read about the medieval Christian church, 
you know that we were taught in those centuries that it would be arrogant of you to, know, to say that you know for sure you're going to heaven. The mighty Jerusalem that we just sang about a few moments ago or that the uh, choir sang for us. This beautiful new city to which we go. It would be arrogant of you. In fact, it's still taught in the Roman Catholic Church. It would be prideful of you to claim that you know you're going to go. Why? Because from that perspective and the perspective of every other religion, you'll only end up in happiness at the end of the life if you do well in this life. In other words, it's by works. So for you to tell me for sure you're going to heaven, that means you're for sure you're going to live a good life. That would be arrogant. But notice how the gospel switches everything. Now, it would be arrogant for you as a believer not to be sure you're going to heaven because you think going to heaven depends upon your performance. And what the Bible is teaching you, it depends upon his performance. And his performance is perfect, gloriously perfect. And all your sins are perfectly washed clean by his shed blood on the cross. So we humbly claim the crown through Christ our own. Humbly claim it because it's propitiation through not our blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been purchased by him. Now notice then when you come to the third part of this middle paragraph, this would be verses 25b and 26, there's a purpose for this. You say, well, the purpose is I get saved. Well, that is a purpose, but it's the penultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is the glory of God in this magnificent plan of salvation. Here, God, the only true God who made us, who warned us, who even threatened us that we would die if we violated his law, now, now has a righteousness for people who don't deserve it. Now, he has given his only son that we may have fellowship with him. Now, he has made it clear that he is not only a just God, but the justifier of rebels because of the plan that was put in place which both saves us and maintains the glory of his holiness and justice. What a God. What a salvation. Which brings us to the last paragraph which begins to explain Christian behavior in our day and in days past. Here we see, and it's your Roman numeral number three, justified sinners inevitably respond. Not people who claim to be forgiven, but people who are truly justified by this miraculous and gracious act of God. They respond. Well, how do they respond? Well, we'll see. In this text, he he asks three questions that show us the three areas that he wants to mention to these Jews and Gentiles, the difference it makes for you to know this gospel. Why is it important for us to know it? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, the, the great uh, Warren Buffett of this century and the one prior once said, never, ladies and gentlemen, invest in anything you don't understand. You say, well, duh, I'm telling you, lots of wealthy people 
put a lot of money into things they don't understand, and they often lose it. Buffett says that's idiocy. Don't ever invest in any mechanism or any program that you don't understand. So it is with us. I wouldn't suggest that you invest your life in Jesus Christ unless you understand what he claims to have done for you. And Paul does it here. Having done that, I would call upon you to invest your life. Have you? Have you received this gift? And are you willing to receive the obligations that flow from it? Now, we're very careful to say, you're not justified by your works. But we also say, don't we, as Presbyterian evangelicals, that we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It's always accompanied by Christian behavior, always. Every sincerely justified sinner will respond. Some of you will know the name Molly Worthen. She is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And uh, she's a Yale uh, PhD in history. And then she came to UNC where she's been teaching history there, touching on some religious issues from time to time. But the important point about Molly Worthen right now is that she became a Christian last year, which I have to say is quite unusual for people in our elite university in the professor staff to get converted while they're professors, but she did last year. Tim Keller had a part to play in that. They had conversations, and so you may have seen Molly Worthen's article in The Atlantic describing Tim as a unique evangelist who showed us the idiocy of secular liberalism. Well, she wrote that article, I'm sure, out of personal gratitude as well. But we interviewed her at the Gospel Coalition, and during her interview, she said, you know, after I decided to go public, which was a few months after I I was converted, public at my faculty, I was amazed, she said, by the number of faculty who came up to me and said, you know, I believe in God too. She said, you do? And they said, yeah. She was amazed that so many claimed to believe in God, but she then went on to say what amazed her more was how little difference it made in their lives, which means they haven't received what's written in this text because justified sinners will always respond. Now, Paul gives us three ways and then we'll close. First of all, he says, we will cease our boasting. You see that in verses 27 and 28. Of course, if you're concerned about your own performance, you're always boasting about it, hoping to convince yourself and God too and also your neighbors that maybe you're justified, maybe you're good enough to make it. So you can't help but boast. Paul says elsewhere, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. We boast in Christ alone. Let no flesh boast in the presence of God, says Paul in 1 Corinthians. So the humility, the confident humility that comes upon a Christian who knows the problem and knows the solution that's been given to him or her. Thirdly, you'll notice that we embrace, I'm sorry, secondly, this is B on your outline, we embrace one another. The greatest division in history is Jew and Gentile. Paul says this gospel solves your hostility and differences among you because God is one and he has one plan of salvation. You were created by him, you are unjustified before him, and then you receive the gospel and are now justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. All of you, Jew and Gentile. Therefore, let's be done with playing to these human divisions between rich and poor and 
and racial differences and educational differences and all the rest. So you have the very basis for Christian unity in the gospel itself. Thirdly, notice in verse 31, we uphold the law of God, which sounds strange to some of you because you're thinking, well, I just thought, I thought we just got rid of the law because I'm not justified based on my performance with the law so I can be done with the law. No, here's the mystery. You're done with the law for your justification. You embrace the law and live it out in your sanctification. The law that once condemned you has now become a sacred guide to your intimacy with Jesus Christ. You love the law of God because it no longer condemns you, but continually reminds you of your need of Christ and continually shows you the way of Christ because the law is simply God, God's character being revealed and perfectly in Jesus Christ. So my friends, this is the gospel. This is what we believe. And so I ask you this day, have you received the gospel? Are you carrying on some other religious strategy that you're whistling in the dark, hoping that somehow God will grade you on the curve. God does not compromise his moral standard when he saves people. He sustains his holiness and his grace. Have you received the gospel? Secondly, for those of you who know you've received it, is this your daily contemplation? Is this the reason that you forgive your spouse, your parents, your children, your workmates, because you've been completely, unconditionally forgiven in this gospel. And therefore, that's what you give to other people. When you think about the intimacy that you have in marriage, the way you're loving each other, does the gospel come to your mind that this is my motivation? This is why I'm living out what I live? I know a girl from North Korea. It was her motivation. It transformed her. It's meant to transform us all. His blood, his righteousness, our glorious dress. Father, we thank you for this gospel and pray that we may believe it, understand it, put it into practice. For the sake of your glory, as you demonstrate to the angels and to all the onlooking world that you have a people who have real Righteousness is a gift given to them and their sins are completely cleansed from them. So they stand before you fall us. Help us to be the people you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.